Hey everyone, it is me, Joseph Thomas, which means it's time for a new episode of Mortified Conversations. Uh, before I get too far into this, I would like to remind everyone to please visit the blog and newsletter at mortified.substack.com, as well as our podcast site, mortifiedconversations.com. Uh, both of those places, you may subscribe to things and share with your friends, and I would greatly appreciate it if you would. Now, on this episode, I'm changing it up a little bit. We are getting into the world of funeral service with our guest for the first time. I have Mr. Dominic Astorino, who is a, an adjunct professor of embalming and restorative art at Warsham College in Chicago and Wayne State University in Detroit. He is also a lecturer. He's traveled all over the United States, Canada, Europe, and Africa. Uh, presenting lectures and seminars on embalming and restorative art to funeral professionals in those places and is just a general uh, reconstructive embalming and restorative art expert which if you don't know what that is don't worry you will by the time we're done this is mortified here with Dominic Astorino. Dominic, how are you tonight? Good, Joseph. How are you? I'm doing all right. Doing doing very well. Um, this is uh, this is really cool. I really appreciate you doing this. Uh, it's actually the first time we've ever spoken to each other. <laughs> I've I've sat through your seminars and you've given me seminars, but uh, first conversation we've ever had. So I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, me too. It's nice to meet you in a virtual kind of way. <laughs> yes, nice to meet you too. So the big thing I wanted to start off with uh, is you are an instructor at two separate mortuary colleges and uh, you do mortuary science, you do embalming, and you uh, also do the restorative art instruction. Is that correct? That's, that's it. Yep. That's kind of your thing. So could you tell, I think I got a pretty good idea of what it is that you do. Uh, but everybody else may not. So could you give us a rundown kind of what being a restorative art instructor slash expert entails? Are you talking about like on the school end or um, outside of school when I'm actually working? Because on the school end, it's usually just a lot of emails two minutes before the assignments are due. Uh, <laughs> saying, hey, can I have more time or dog ate my homework kind of thing? <laughs> yes. Uh, so that... But also, yeah, on the practical end, too, kind of what uh, just so people know what we're talking about, what we're getting into here. Yeah. So, I mean, on the practical end, restorative art is, is any sort of um, restoration or reconstruction of the decedent to their natural form or color. So it might be something as simple as um, the person passed away under non-ideal conditions and the color of their skin is no longer presentable, like if someone was, was really jaundiced or had a disease that caused uh, extreme weight loss or discoloration. And it could be anything as um, advanced as a crushed head or a face, a traumatic injury or death, you know, car accident, homicide, things of that nature. Right. And, and then the restorative art part is 
trying to bring that back as close to natural form, right? That's yeah. The, the form and the color that's, I mean, mm -hmm. that's the ultimate goal. Um, I think, especially in, in cases of those traumatic or sudden death or, or ones after prolonged illness, the families especially benefit um, from seeing their loved one at, at peace or repose. And that's what restorative art essentially does. And it can provide. Right. Yes. Uh, so in, in the school end now, uh, what all is involved in the class besides the emails asking for, uh, <laughs> besides the emails asking for extensions, uh, what kind of things do you, do you and the students go through uh, during the, during the term? So it, it's a two semester course. The first semester is pretty much based on the anatomy of the human head and face, uh, particularly the skeletal anatomy, uh, and as well as the facial proportions. I see you nodding your head. So you probably remember from when you were in school learning the, the proportions and the measurements of the face. Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, <laughs> second semester, we get into more of a practical or methodical approach. We talk about um, color theory, cosmetic application, wax application, and then case specific type, type things like treatment of gunshots or abrasions or whatever the case may be. Okay. So, yeah, I remember um, you were saying that and immediately when you started talking about like skeletal formation in the, in the head and face, um, I, I started listing bones that I learned in 2002. That's, you, had a, you had a good teacher then if it comes that's, back right away. I mean, that's that, the goal. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's it. And, uh, immediately. I was just like parietal eminences, you know, occipital <laughs> protuberance, yeah. uh, or orbital bones, uh, yeah. zygomatic arches, just, it, it all, it all comes rushing back, but it's all, it's all necessary because you need to know what you're dealing with. Um, and I know this sounds strange to a lot of people probably who are not, in this world. Um, but it's, it, it is necessary and it is helpful. And the only way to do a good job is to know the basics first. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's, that's the, the main message I preach all year to the students is that you can apply basic fundamentals to even the most advanced case with success, as long as you learn the fundamentals and right. over it. I always, my, this isn't restorative art related necessarily, but my kids always want to, I got three children. They always want to jump to the advanced stuff. Right. They don't, they don't want to learn the basics. And, and my example is always, you know, Picasso had to be a really good painter before he could do all the weird stuff. Right. <laughs> you know, he, he had to do that. And it's the same, same story here. Well, the students, especially they're excited to enter the career and to be in school. And uh, I think in their mind, you know, the, the more exciting things are the more advanced topics. And so they just automatically want to jump there. Um, I mean, but as you mentioned, if you don't have the basics down, it's, it's a challenge. It's, it's a much different scenario when you're entrusted with the responsibility of someone's son or husband or wife, as opposed to just reading about it in a textbook. So you got, you got to have those fundamentals down. Right. Right. Practical application, uh, comes at you pretty quickly once you get out in in the world in the field so do you have them do you have the students construct an actual head or is that out of date now does no, that not uh, happen anymore 
No, sadly, it still happens. And I say sadly because I'm on record multiple times as, as really not liking that project. Um, but it is the, the mortuary school standard. And to be honest with you, the students look forward to it, if for anything, the, the social media posts where they can put their clay head on Instagram. But as far as like from an academic standpoint goes, um, there's, there's much more applicable things that I've started to institute over the years, but, but change is hard. So it's, it's a process for sure. Oh yeah. I, uh, you know, I had, um, it's a good thing. Social media did not exist when I was there because (laughs) (laughs) as soon as you said that, you know, my first thought was I, I built my wife's, I built a, a a replica of my wife's head. Yeah. You got it. It looks really good. (laughs) Yeah. It doesn't now it's, but, but I still have it. It's, it's at my parents' house. She won't let me bring it home. Uh, but it's, I, I built that and it was when we were dating. Uh, so she always makes fun of it. She always like makes fun of me for making this head of, of hers, but I would have gotten in a lot of trouble if I'd posted that on Instagram. Uh, you know, I remember, I remember one, my, my embalming instructor, walked through i had spent an hour on uh on building a nose for this mm-hmm. thing and and as you know noses are very prominent features <laughs> if, right. if the nose doesn't look right nothing really looks right yeah. and i got it right I, I felt really good about it and i put it on there and i smoothed all the wax out and my embalming instructor walked in and looked at it and looked at the picture and then took his finger and flattened it and walked off. <laughs> and I was like, what are you, what, why would you do that? <laughs> I spent yeah. so much time on this. Um, but that was, uh, I get what you're saying. Um, that was fun though. It was nice. And it did have some practical applications. Um, I, you know, you, you learn to build those individual things, um, yeah, no, that's that's very beneficial. The, the right. individual features, and there there are some some benefits to like the team camaraderie, working in the lab with your your classmates and everything. Um, but I mean, over the years, I've started to institute more hands-on, like actual cranial reconstruction type labs, where um, some years we use um, real human remains with disarticulated skulls. And other years we're using synthetic skulls, but you know, learning how to to piece together the bone and reconstruct the human form uh, to me is more applicable than spending a semester using clay and trying to make Michael Jackson's face out of right. clay with no hair on it. You know? <laughs> oh, the really dedicated ones though, they'll go and buy a wig, right? Like they'll, yeah, I mean, so yeah, they'll, they'll they got the whole thing when it's over, but. <laughs> Yeah, and not, try to put cosmetics on it and everything. Oh man, yeah, that was uh, that was a rough, rough semester. Did you ever have you ever had anybody intentionally botch that, like make a big joke out of it? Yeah, um, I, I mean, I've had a couple come to mind, and it's. Um, I mean, I, I take my work seriously. You could probably tell from our our last get together in Nashville. Yes. Um, and I, I tell the students this at the beginning, that if you're not going to take the work seriously, then I'm not going to take your grade seriously. And then they act like, oh, how did I fail? Well, you turned in a clay head. It literally looks like a foot. And you put <laughs> probably one hour into it instead of 30 or 40. Um, 
Right. But I, I mean, all, all kidding aside, it's it's a it's a responsibility to to educate the students and then to say they're competent to go out and serve the families that we serve. And imagine if you know you your family was sitting across the table from a funeral director in need of a reconstructive embalmer and that person was just sort of slid through and allowed to joke their way through school and and not focus on everything it'd be a disservice to to multiple people just in that one instance so i right. love to laugh i love to joke i love to have fun with the students but they they've definitely got to do the work right you got to take it seriously well and and when they leave i mean they're like you're putting your stamp on these folks too it's, it's exactly right and yeah I'm, I'm, in a way, putting the stamp of the, the school. I mean, I'm very proud of where I work at Warsham in Chicago and Wayne State in Detroit and those institutions entrust me mm -hmm. uh, with the instruction of the embalming and the restorative art. So it's not just my stamp of approval, it's the university or the school stamp of approval on the graduate. And that's, that's a big responsibility. Right, right. I know I was, uh, on my end, I was a, I believe, third generation at my mortuary college, and um, they they were very serious. They were very serious about that, uh, the reputation, and they didn't want just anybody leaving. They didn't want anybody walking out with a degree because I'm sure you've dealt with this, too, in the funeral home, finding qualified people finding good qualified people is not easy. No. It's when a, you try to hire somebody. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's every year. It seems to be getting more and more difficult. Right. Right. And right so, you know, you've got all these people running around trying to get funeral home jobs and saying, I went to school here. I went to school here. And, and some of the schools don't seem to pay too much attention or care too much who they're sending out. And so it's, I appreciate when the school's, do have high standards and and are concerned with the caliber of students they're putting out. They're not just worried about national board success rate uh, on yeah, the national board exam. You know, they're they're worried about people going out and doing a good job. Yeah, it's a combination of that academic side of teaching professionalism and expectations. Once you get into the business, um, I mean, the idea is to graduate competent people that can go out and improve the industry instead of hinder it or, or make it go backwards and it, right it's a challenge it's hard work it is it's tough and and the job itself yeah i haven't been able to have these conversations a lot uh outside of the funeral homes honestly but uh, the job itself while there are aspects of it and this sounds weird to the people who aren't in it there are aspects of it that are that are fun. Yeah. Uh, and they're there. I loved, you know, the variety of it. I, I always liked those days when I'd walk in, it's like, Oh, okay. I'm working this service and going to this cemetery that I haven't been to in three years. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I have to come back and there's a, somebody coming in that I have to talk to. And, you know, you just never know what you're going to end up with. You never know what you're going to be doing from one day to the next. I always love that, but it's also a, very serious job because people are coming in at literally the the worst moment of their lives possibly up to that point 
and you got to be able to deal with it. You got to be able to handle it. And you're dealing with multiple different types of people from multiple different types of backgrounds and cultures. And sometimes it's, you just kind of walk away shaking your head, like not, not in a condescending way, but like how sometimes it's just hard to believe that people think or act the way that they do. I mean, you know what I'm talking about? We see all sorts of things and yes, you can attribute it to grief and extreme stress and Sometimes you can just attribute it to weird people, though, because yeah. everyone dies, right? Normal people, weird people, eccentric people, everyone's going to die. And um, that's part of the variety of what we do is we get to, we get to see all of it. It is. And you don't know who's walking in the door. You you never know. Even if you know the person, this is what I found out, because my hometown is pretty small. And I knew uh, I knew a lot of the people that came through. But even when I knew them there were several times that I was very surprised at who I was dealing with because you're seeing a side of them. Um, I always said, you know, I'm not a person, I'm a funeral director. And that's how they, that's how folks tended to view us. They get in that room and they'd shut the door to, to make those funeral arrangements. And all of a sudden I'm not Joseph that they see out at whatever restaurant or Mm -hmm. that they see walking around town or whatever. I'm the funeral director and they can act however they want to, because I'm not a human being. That's the way it always felt to me. And yeah. And it, and I'm sitting there looking at him going, I can't, I've never seen this side of this particular person before. And I probably will never see it again. And I'm not going to tell anybody, but nobody would believe me even if I tried. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think we all have those stories that are, (laughs) right. um, They're just unbelievable. If you were trying to explain them and, it's just it, people react strange when they're under that kind of pressure and stress and grief. And uh, it's, we're entrusted with that. So. Right. It's responsibility. And it, it's a responsibility to, to take care of those people just like the, I don't want to say the normal ones, but you know what I mean? Not yeah. the not eccentric, the not weird, the, yeah. the, the nice, easy, the nice, easy families, I mean, they're easy, you know, we're, but we have to deal with both sides equally and, and treat them both the same. And we should. Yes. And uh, that's, that was always one of my, one of my favorite parts. One of the things I liked was that variety, getting to deal with those folks and seeing, I always, I would make challenges with myself, honestly. Like if, if somebody was being difficult, (laughs) I would say, I'm going to turn this one around, you know, in my head, I would be like, before we're done, this person is going to like me. (laughs) Sometimes it works, but sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. I mean, I I didn't bat a thousand on that one for sure. (laughs) (laughs) And every once in a while, they'd like me less after I did that. But I tried real hard. If I saw that happening, I'd back off and just get through and let them go because they didn't want to be dealing with me anyway. (laughs) That's all you can do. And at the end of the day, people are all different and they're there all for the same reason. And some people are going to react one way and other people are going to react another way. And it's our job to deal with all of it. So. Right. And so you are, you're a fairly young guy. I don't know how old you are, but you're younger. Okay. So you're not uh, in funeral years. (laughs) You're like a, you're like a teenager. Uh, (laughs) That's right. As far as funeral directors go, uh, 
you're not a, a 90 year old who's still driving the hearse on Wearing services. So, but you're doing something that a lot of people have, have given up on a lot of the younger folks and I'm going back to the restorative art thing and the reconstructive embalming. You are emphasizing something that a lot of people our age, because I, I just turned 39, so we're right there. Pe- a lot of people our age don't emphasize and actually don't value. And right. so how have how has that been received as you because you travel all over the place and talk about this stuff? How has that been received uh, in your travels overall? If you're talking about the, let's just use 40 as the, the line of demarcation between the, the older people and the younger people in the profession, I get a, I get a, a stronger, more enthusiastic feedback from the younger people. Uh, for the most part, they want to learn it. It's, it's, it almost has this mystique to it, like this mysterious thing that they want to learn, but they don't think is possible. And it somehow in their mind is, is unachievable, but the, the younger people, for the most part, have a strong desire to learn and to, to make changes and it, to implement changes. And so um, I generally have better feedback if it's an overall younger crowd than, say, a crowd that's 50 and above, 60, you know, things like that. Okay. And, you know, I initially, I thought it would be the other way around. But as soon as you said they want to learn it, I, I started thinking about the people that I know. Mm-hmm. And I guess the ones who are saying that it's not necessary, they are the not old, old. Because I know I look at my granddad who would have been um, in his. Oh, gosh, he would have been old <laughs> by now. It's I, I hadn't done the math till right now. I was like, oh, man, he would have been real old. But. Uh, he, yeah, he would have hit 90 this year, I believe, if I'm doing my math right. Uh, he was a, a staunch believer in this, and he would sit and, and do everything he could to talk families into giving him however many days he felt like he was going to need to do the work and do it well so that they could see that person and see yeah. that person looking as, as good as they possibly could but then people, I guess, the generation below him, they're the ones who have kind of determined it unnecessary. In, in a way, I, I think the best way that I can describe the, that younger generation is they're, they're passionate. And the ones that, are, that focus that passion on wanting to learn this stuff are extremely passionate about it. But then on the other hand, you have, you know, the groups that are very passionate about we don't want to embalm. We, we should green burials. And, and those people are just as passionate about that. It's one of the, the differences in these generations is, I mean, this, this advent of social media and everything, everyone can not only have an opinion, but post it for thousands, if not millions of people to see and pick up steam. And so yeah. it's, it's easier to get passionate about something. And then it just rolls downhill like a snowball picking up energy as it goes and momentum. Um, but overall, I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of younger people that are very enthusiastic about it. That 
I'm glad to hear it. I really am because I, you know, I came up in, in a situation that felt very strongly about that, emphasized that uh, the, one of the guys I worked with, he was a couple years older than me. And he, he came in and learned that. And then I came in and learned and we, we would get frustrated when we weren't given the opportunity mm-hmm. to, to try and, and make the situation better. Uh, somebody who, who needed some extra, a little bit of extra effort to get them to where the family could see them and feel good about what they saw. And we would get frustrated, but we were very uh, convicted that we needed to be doing it if the family would let us. And I've watched that kind of, like dissipate as across the country is I don't know if if families are getting more opinionated in that they don't want to do all that or if folks don't know how on our end you know if if the professionals don't know how and so it's just not an option yeah I think it's more the latter I think it's a lack of confidence in in methodical training because I've never I mean, I can't remember a family that chose to see their loved one, you know, when the, when the person was presentable, regret it after. It's, it's always, oh, we're so glad we did this. We're so glad we made the decision. And it's it's asked for more than it's not asked for. Um, right. I mean, there's a whole lot of things in play that we could talk about cultural changes and um, the structure of our industry with... Um, owners of the the larger businesses who employ the funeral directors and the embalmers. We could talk about the the whole thing, but that's, that would take all night. (laughs) (laughs) We don't, yeah, we don't want to take all night probably. Uh, (laughs) But all that to say, I am very glad to hear you say that the younger generation is coming in and saying, we want to learn this. We want to do this. They're, They're excited. We want to try. And so it's not, it's not going to disappear completely uh, as long as they are around and given the opportunity. So hopefully that, that helps. Hopefully that, that works out because I feel like it's very important. And for the people, for anybody listening right now, um, I mean, we could get into all kinds of reasons that it's beneficial to be able to see someone uh, after they are deceased. Uh, I know there are, there are psychological benefits. I was, having to read on that today for, uh, for work, just reading a big, long, very clinical <laughs> description mm-hmm. of, of psychological benefits. And, um, so we're sitting here talking about it, like it's very matter of fact, but people who are listening may, they may just be like, why is this a big deal? And so if anybody's asking that question, that's why it's a big deal because it, it provides closure. It provides, uh, it confirms a reality and it, it may, it may not help right away, but down the road, typically it is beneficial. And so that's why, that's why we're having this conversation, why you feel so strongly about it and why I feel so strongly about it. And I, um, and so I want everybody else to understand why we're talking so much about this (laughs) because it's a, it's a world that if you're not in it, uh, you may or may not know. So, but you, you deal with the younger generation a lot. Um, you teach at two different colleges. Uh, 
I'm really glad there are people like you doing that. Thank you. Uh, but you also, you also are an actual funeral director too, right? You are, yeah. you work in a funeral home. Yeah. I every day. A, a large <laughs> high volume family owned funeral home in, in the metropolitan area. Okay. Uh, I've been there for 18 years. So um, it's definitely home. It's, you know, Good my gracious. second home. Yes. So what, what got you into the funeral business in general? I was just a weird kid. <laughs> <laughs> no, when I was, uh, <clears throat> when I was six, I had to go to a funeral. My mom's cousin passed away. Um, she was very young. She was 26 or 27 years old, died of cancer. And um, I was fascinated with the whole thing, even at, at six years old, the the fancy suits that the funeral directors wore, the the building itself, the fact that there was someone who was dead who looked alive, the fact that all the family was there um, together and, and visiting, the whole thing was intriguing to me. And I, I, I told my parents in the car on the way home, that's what I'm going to do when, when I, that's what I want to be when I grow up. I want to be an undertaker. And <laughs> I actually count myself fortunate. I never changed my mind. So, you know, through junior high, high school, college, I knew I was going to be an undertaker. And I just, I started working in a funeral when I was 16 years old and uh, I'm 40 now and I, I never stopped. So that is, that's, that's not what I expected. I don't know what I did expect, but I didn't expect at age six, I, de- I decided this. I mean, I, like I grew up in this and I didn't decide to do it till I was 18 or 19. I fought it. Factory. <laughs> and uh, my mom was a secretary and I was, like I said, I was the weird kid. I have two brothers and we'd go visit our relatives and, you know, we're kids. And my one brother would say, I want to be a hockey player. And my other brother wants to be a race car driver. And then there I am. I always wanted to wear a suit too. So if you look at like my elementary school photos, I'm like in third grade, three piece suit, <laughs> pocket watch. <laughs> uh, natural born. Director. Yeah. Natural yeah. born funeral director. <laughs> a yeah. pocket watch that, that yeah. just registered a pocket yeah. watch. I, yeah. I thought it was really cool with the vest with the chain on the outside. Oh, I bet. Yeah. Oh, you didn't think you were, you were, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's how that went. <laughs> Let's yeah. not, Let's not mix this up, but um, oh, I'm glad you didn't change your mind, honestly, because uh, at age six, there's plenty of time to to go. I, I don't want to do this, you know, and um, I am if you're anything like me, I bet there were a, at least a couple times early on where you thought about changing your mind. <laughs> Once you got into it, you went, well, oh, no, yeah, <laughs> as you get older, like you get into to high school and you realize that you are that nerd. It, it, that's hard. That's a hard hard reality to accept because of course you're a kid and you want to fit in and uh, but really once I got into my mid-20s and I just kind of accepted like you know what I I am a nerd this is who I am this is what I want to do I'm comfortable with it (laughs) my life got a lot easier after that and a lot more fun and and I'll tell you this I've I've only been to the one seminar that you did uh, but you handled it very academically uh, for lack of a better phrase you can very, say I'm a nerd, very I? nerd-like <laughs> and and honestly that's part of the reason that I reached out to you I was just like okay this this is not your everyday 
funeral director. The, this guy, uh, there's more to it than just that. And um, I feel like the world needs more more nerd funeral directors. Yeah, I uh, would agree with that. I won't yeah. put you on that one. <laughs> but yes, I am. I'm glad that you've and you've been at that same place. Uh, you've been at the same place that long. Yeah. I, it, uh, well, is that I, where you started when you were? No, I, uh, you know, through high school, I worked at uh, another big place in a different part of the city and then um, had a few other jobs here and there. And then out of mortuary school, I was my first year as a funeral director. I worked for another family. But uh, outside of that, August 1st will be 18 years since I started um, where I'm at. And um, it's been great. It's a wonderful family. It's a wonderful business. It's a wonderful part of town, great community. And um, I'm very fortunate to, to have, have the position that I do there and to have the longevity. And uh, it's my hometown as well. So to put okay. me in the, the, the position to, to serve the families that I grew up with or the families that I know, to go in the churches that I know, it's, uh, it's really cool. It's nice. Yeah. And you said you manage that location. Is that correct? Uh, so do you end up, do you still do a lot of the funeral directing and embalming work or are you more? Uh, you know, that's, that's a good question. I, yeah. I just told <laughs> um, a funeral director, a friend of mine the other day that it's harder and harder to feel like a funeral director anymore because when I'm 23, 24, I'm, doing that work every day, services and um, embalming and everything. And as you get to the more administrative side, um, we are very busy. We do 15, 1600 funerals a year. So there's, there's a lot to do, but I, I also have administrative things and logistics things and scheduling things. Um, and eventually there's a breaking point. So I do see a lot of families. I, I direct a lot of funerals in church uh, I don't embalm as much as I used to. Usually it's if it's a difficult case or a trauma case or not to, not to say that I don't do it, but I might have used to do three or 400 embalmings a year. And now I probably do 75 or 80, I would say. Gotcha. And oh man, three to 400 a year. That is, that's, that's a lot and for I'm sitting here as somebody who's done it. Anybody who's done it knows that's a lot of people. <laughs> to... Yeah, well, it's it's busy. You know, that's, yeah, that's one of the great benefits I've had in my career is from a, a very young age, I was exposed to a very high volume, and surrounded by funeral directors with just decades of experience. And so, as a young 21, 22 year old undertaker right out of school you know, one of my classmates might be working in a funeral home doing 80 or hundred calls a year with one funeral director to learn under. Mm -hmm. And I'm seeing 15, 16, 17, 18 times that amount with 15 other people that I can ask for help. So it really was a, a jump start. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you got in and saw right away, uh, just about the busiest you were going to be yeah. <laughs> at least you hoped i'm sure yeah. <laughs> like, if this keeps on i know there were uh we're not at that volume in my hometown at the single location there but uh you know i can remember there were times 
that we got so busy that I was just like, if this keeps up, like I'm going to be the next one. That's, <laughs> that's what's going to happen. That's how I feel now. I mean, <laughs> when I was mentioning like the logistics and everything, imagine having 10 or 12 funerals on a Saturday and managing the, you know, all the cars, all the funeral directors, all the assistants, the church trucks, the flowers, the flower vehicles. It's, it, it's tough. Yeah. That's a lot. Uh, you gotta, yeah. I know <laughs> I, I'll tell this cause I like to tell it, but my grandfather, he was in back in the ambulance days too. Uh, and I think he enjoyed that because he liked to drive fast and uh, he drove everything like it was an ambulance and <laughs> he put off buying a, a second hearse at our location in my hometown. At the time we were, we were probably at, 300 or so calls a year uh one hearse for that whole building for that for all that that's that's tough yeah but i think he put it off because he wanted an excuse to be on one side of the county <laughs> and and try to hit 100 on the way back <laughs> to drive he wanted to be able to drive fast and uh there was a an old an old story there's a, a preacher at the the methodist church in in my hometown and he they had a service at a place that was about normally about an hour and a half away and after this after the burial they got in the car and my granddad looked at him and said i've got to be back at the funeral home in 55 minutes and i think i can do it and that guy ended up writing a whole church bulletin thing about how the ride brought him closer to God. And uh, he was talking about all this, all the songs he was singing in his head as they would hit different, uh, different speeds <laughs> and the, the grip he had on the door handle. But, um, but I know like once we, once we got enough vehicles because he didn't want to drive fast anymore. Uh, I mean, just having a couple of, cars that you had to know where each one was was difficult i can't imagine i can't imagine those kinds of amounts those kinds of numbers all while um having to deal with the people having to know the people having to know the funeral directors um and then you bring you bring the public into it the unpredictable public yeah and it's and it's not bad it's just that you don't know <laughs> You don't yeah, know what that, you're getting. The the weather too. I mean, I'm oh, up in man. Detroit, and in the winter months, it's <laughs> you're rolling the dice every day. You oh, don't know man. if it's going to be an ice skating <laughs> rink out there or what. So, but we roll with it. You know, it's the only thing we can do is be prepared as prepared as we can, mm -hmm. and uh, do what we're trained to do. So that's it. That those those days of walking in and going, this is what we have to do. And we have to get it all done today. Mm -hmm. yeah, there, so, there's no so let's do it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it is what it is. Right. There's no calling somebody and saying, I'm sorry, we have to move your funeral to tomorrow right. yeah, because we ran out of time. Yeah. Or the, <laughs> it's snowing too hard. Or yeah. It's, it is. These are the things we have to get done. Yeah. And uh, 10 a.m. whether you want it to be or not. So. <laughs> yeah, uh, absolutely. <laughs> uh, so. And you said you're in Detroit, right? That's yeah. That is, uh, see, I'm in Memphis now, okay. and that's like you're like the Memphis of the North, I think. I think both of our cities get a lot of disrespect, yeah, <laughs> nationwide. And uh, I just and want I'm you. Sure to... Memphis is a is a great town. I mean, Detroit's a great city. Oh man, but it's uh, 
you know, it's underappreciated and a lot of misnomers about it. A lot of true things too, that are unfortunately crappy, but Oh it, yeah. It's a great city. Well, I just, I want you to know uh, that I'm, I'm standing in solidarity with you and <laughs> in, in my underappreciated Southern city <laughs> and your underappreciated Northern city. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> And I need to visit Detroit sometime. I've never, I've driven through once. Uh, we, I was on a college trip and we drove, we had to drive to Canada for this college oh, yeah. trip and we drove through Detroit and I was in Detroit. It would have been May of Oh four. Uh, so it was the year that the Pistons or no, it was, it was June. Cause they'd had a, a class that after graduation time and uh, it was a, a class there so it's like middle of june and it was the year one of those years that the pistons won the uh, nba championship mm-hmm. and we were in detroit for one of those games and i can't remember which one but i i just remember we were we showed up and we were staying at somebody's house they came to pick us up and we were watching the game and detroit was getting blown out and the guy was real angry <laughs> he was just like i'm not watching this anymore let's just go home and so we were driving home and he flipped on the radio and Chauncey Billups had hit a half-court shot to tie the game and send it into overtime. Huh. And he heard that, and he looked at me. I was in the passing seat. So he looked at me, and he just took off. And he got to a stoplight, and there was a sports bar, and he looked in the window and could watch it on TV, and he was watching the shot. And then as soon as that light turned green, he just floored it. And we had to get home in time to watch the other two overtimes, basically. That's like the grandpa was driving the hearse. That's right. Yes, it was. I was holding on, singing church songs in my head. <laughs> but so that's my only time in Detroit. That was like one night. And basically, we just sat in the guy's basement and watched Detroit come back and win. And then we left the next morning. It's so a, I, a great city. I mean, I feel like home, I need to go. I, I may do it one day. Well, yeah. we'll see. <laughs> I'll let you know if I ever do. And yeah, if you are up. in Memphis, I will show you good food. I would love that. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Dominic, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate this. Uh, I feel like I feel like this was a really good conversation. I love I like getting to talk shop a little bit. I uh, hope, um, you know, I hope you did, too. Yeah, this was great. Thank you for the invite. It was nice to to meet you like this face to face and to have the chat and ask me back anytime. I'd love to keep talking. So. All right. Sounds good. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. Have a great night. Thanks.